0: This episode is brought to you by my good friends at Huzo. Huzo is an acronym for human sound. Huzo delivers uniquely enhanced human toning sounds through headphones as well as through pads placed on your major acupuncture meridians on your body, which are your wrist and your ankles, thereby introducing a specific modulated frequency that are balancing and harmonizing throughout your body. One session takes about 30 minutes, and during that time, a strange series of tones create a natural resonance in your body that Huzo claims counteracts the harmful EMFs, toxins, and stresses you are exposed to during the day or just normal living, all while balancing the body, leaving you with a clear head, improved health, better sleep, and the feeling of calmness and well-being. You can try one at www.thisishuzo.com rebel. Use the code rebel25 to save $25. The folks at Huzo even have a great payment solution for you with terms up to 12 months. Check it out. I highly recommend this machine. It has changed my life. And calmed me out. Thank you, and enjoy this episode.
1: There's a lot working against us. That is for certain. You know, SIBO I think is interesting because it's not a disease in and of itself. It's really a sign that something in the fundamental machinery of our digestive system has gone wrong.
0: Welcome to episode number 111 of the Rebel Health Coach Podcast. My guest today is Phoebe Lapine. Phoebe is a food and health writer, a gluten-free chef, speaker, and the voice behind the award-winning blog, Feed Me, Phoebe. Named by Women's Health Magazine as the Top Nutrition Read of 2017, Phoebe's debut memoir, The Wellness Project, chronicles her journey with the autoimmune disease Hashimoto's thyroiditis. She is the host of the SIBO Made Simple podcast and author of the forthcoming book by the same name, SIBO Made Simple, which helps those newly diagnosed or chronically fighting SIBO. Or small intestine bacterial overgrowth. Phoebe's work has appeared in Food and Wine, Marie Claire, Self Magazine, Glamour Magazine, Cosmopolitan, and Mind Body Green, who also named her one of the top 100 women to watch in wellness. She lives in Brooklyn, New York with her husband and the Beagle. I hope you enjoy this episode. And I have to say, as far as health and wellness books go that I've read, which are many, SIBO Made Simple is a fantastic book for those who are fighting or struggling with SIBO or small intestine bacterial overgrowth, or those who are in this industry and coach people with SIBO. This book is amazingly written and it was. Quite an amazing read. I hope you enjoy this episode. Make it a great day. Phoebe Lapine, what an honor it is for you to join me today on the Rebel Health Coach Podcast.
1: Thanks for having me. How are you today? I'm good. You know, the weather is starting to turn here on the East Coast. So, you know, with that comes optimism and (laughs) joy.
0: Well, you had... (laughs) You had one major storm this winter.
1: We had a few, Did had you? a few, okay. yeah, a lot I, of snow, a lot yeah. of snow.
0: Okay. Well, that happens in the winter up there, and I remember what time when I flew up there to form my medical supply company with my two gentlemen, my two partners, and I got it was February and I had Valentine's Day. I got stuck in New York trying to get back to oh,
2: Atlanta.
0: No. <laughs> so anyway. Before we dig into today's show and this episode on your latest book Sibo Made Simple, which I have to say, this is when I received your book, I didn't get a chance to open it right away. And when I opened it the other night, I was blown—simply blown away. I mean, this book—I mean, I read a lot of health and wellness books, especially being in the podcast realm, and every, people want to talk about their books, which is great, and I love it, but. This book, when I opened it, I was like, "This is freaking amazing!"
1: Oh, thank you.
0: (laughs) And the reason being is even the intro, and Will, who you got Will Cole to write the Mm -hmm. intro, I was like, "Wow!" Plus, it's this book. I've read a lot of books on SIBO and gut health, and this book keeps it simple for the listener,
1: yeah, or,
0: or for the person that has SIBO. Or any type of gut health issue, and then you, you know, go into to the recipes which are amazing, and I can't wait to try some of them. I don't cook much; I order box. (laughs) I ordered my food from what is it called, Freshly? Oh yeah. So, because I have a time commitment, so I just I ordered the food's delivered. I just whip the recipes together, and anyway, but I really major props for this book.
1: Thanks so much. Yeah, it was a a labor of love and a labor of labor, as I say, as all books are.
0: It's <laughs> a lot of work.
1: Yeah, definitely. Yeah. But I'm so glad you think it's, it's going to be an asset for all these patients out there. I really did try to make it the most comprehensive guide as possible for all of us just kind of dealing with these issues in the dark.
0: Yeah, and this is a big issue. And uh, as we get into this 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 morning, it's something that really at this point where we're at in our society, we really have to get, get. Mm. Because as we'll talk about a little bit, our gut is a major issue. Yeah. So, but before we dig in, who is Phoebe? and? how did you get into this crazy health arena and become the SIBO amigo?
1: Yeah, so I have a food background, although truth be told, I'm kind of untrained in everything I do. But I quit my corporate job when I was in my early 20s to focus full-time on a whole assortment of odd food jobs. I was a caterer and a private chef in New York and did a lot of recipe development and published a cookbook um, kind of in my early to mid-20s. And ironically, around the same time, when I was 22, I was diagnosed with an autoimmune disease. Um, Hashimoto's thyroiditis. Mm. And it took me many years for the kind of health side of my story to dovetail with all of my food training and to start to use my skills in the kitchen to actually heal myself. But eventually I managed to work myself into such a rock bottom that it became my only choice. So I was just, you know, and By the way, cooking is a very physical job. It's like even more physical in New York City when you're like schlepping your groceries everywhere and taking the subway and whatnot. But I was, you know, really in a bad place. My skin was a mess. I was just exhausted all the time. I had to stop running because of the crazy cramps I would get. I had terrible insomnia and was, you know, Constantly waking up with night sweats. I was basically having like premenopausal hot flashes, like throughout the day. So eventually I ended up in the office of someone with a more holistic approach. And he did a ton of blood work, put me on an elimination diet. And, you know, long story short, I ended up changing a lot of things about my lifestyle. But I also felt, you know, as someone kind of in my mid twenties with a limited budget, like living in a shoebox and like limited time, that just the to do list from you know the well the wellness zeitgeist was just so long and overwhelming, and that kind of eventually led me to. Design my own little year of health experiment that I called the Wellness Project. And that was my second book, which was kind of all about healing the Hashimoto's um, by making one change one month at a time and really focusing on kind of like the 360 approach to it all. So, you know, the sleep element, hydration, of course, diet, but also hormone balancing, liver detox. Exercise, alignment, uh, stress management, just like the whole gambit. And it was amazing. It really, the project really did work. My blood work was like night and day by the end of it. And, you know, of course, gut health was a central part of that mission so much of autoimmune disease and many diseases come back to the health of our gut. So, you know, I thought I I knew a lot of what there was to know. I interviewed some incredible microbiome specialists and scientists and about 7 months after the book came out which you know Book launch is a very stressful time, even in the COVID era when you don't leave your house. Um, and that particular one was—I was running around the country doing all these events and whatnot—and I think put myself under more stress than I realized. And you know, that fall I started to have these IBS symptoms, kind of creeping back into my life. Mm-hmm. And you know, most people with autoimmune disease are not strangers to gut issues, and I certainly wasn't. But like these were—it felt different. Like the bloating just never went away. I was burping all the time in the middle of meals, um, which was new. And so again, eventually I went back you know, to my doctor and he immediately ordered a SIBO breath test. Also, I will say that while I was trying to overcome these issues, I was doing what I thought all the microbiome specialists had told me to do, which I was just doubling down on probiotics and and legumes like inulin rich veggies and i was just making myself more and more miserable without realizing it. So anyway, the tpo test obviously came back positive and i just kind of fell down the rabbit hole and it, it was honestly a, a similar experience as the hashimotos like what i found was just so complicated and convoluted even more so than dealing with autoimmune disease the advice there were so many conflicting opinions there were so many you know different ways to to tackle it that i ended up just writing a series of posts on my site with with what I found. And you know, I think because my superpower is distilling complicated information into, you know, easily digestible terms, the post just took off. And I kind of realized that, oh, my my audience, my autoimmune audience already has SIBO. So I started the podcast, um, which is also called SIBO Made Simple, and just started interviewing all these incredible practitioners since, you know, the research is really in its nascency. Um, still a lot that's being discovered, a lot that I had to revise, you know, like desperately before the publishing date of the book as new revelations kind of occurred. But I think, you know, these practitioners have been at the forefront of this for a long time, um, really seeing kind of what works clinically. And yeah, it was incredible to to get a wide array of their advice from the podcast and then yeah, the book was kind of always the resource that I wanted to create for people, and distilling all of that advice into kind of a choose-your-own-adventure user's manual right. for for all sorts of different gut health problems, but specifically SIBO, of course. And then combining it, you know, with what I'm good at, which is the recipe side of things, since a lot of people on with SIBO whittle themselves down to a really sad, <laughs> limited diet. And there are just a lot of issues that kind of dovetail with SIBO, like histamine intolerance or sensitivity to sulfur, yeast, candida, all of that. So the book kind of you know, speaks to everyone, no matter what your issue is.
0: I agree 100% on that. And one of the things that I really liked about, like I said, the book is the fact that you put this in, in more of a, a layman's terms and... Yeah. I've always been a huge proponent of the quote by Hippocrates, all disease begins in the gut. Mm. And I am confident, and when I say this, that if your gut is healthy and functioning well, like a fine-tuned engine, your chances of getting sick are probably less than 5%. Yeah. Because the gut pretty much, I mean, God made our bodies in, in, in an amazing way. And the gut is like, where it all is. Because right? we have to yeah. feed ourselves nutrition. We have to and there's a lot going on between from the beginning of digestion at the nose all the way down to going uh, the elimination. Yeah. And man, it's just in our food system is so jacked up these days <laughs> yeah. that there's no there's no wonder why everybody is getting sick.
1: There's a lot working against us yes. that is for certain. You know, SIBO I think is interesting because it's not a disease in and of itself. It's really a sign that something in the fundamental machinery of our digestive system has gone wrong. And I, you know, again truly thought that I understood a lot of what there was to understand about digestion and gut health prior, but in drilling down on SIBO, I mean, I Learned of certain functions that had just never come up and I'd never heard like any medical professional talk about. And I think they're so important because, you know, this acute condition is really, really frustrating. But, you know, the silver lining part of it is that it does teach you, you know, everything that you need to do to support your digestion to be running on all cylinders.
0: Right. And one thing I do like about Like a lot of these practitioners that are out there, and there's a lot of great ones. And is that this whole microbiome thing is is really exploding, and people are really starting to realize, especially with COVID. I mean, let's face it, your gut is a major contributor to your immune system. Totally. So what? Let's go into SIBO. What first in the SIBO basics, as you called it in here. But it is the basics. What exactly is SIBO?
1: Okay. Well, SIBO stands for small intestine bacterial overgrowth. And I think, you know, with the knowledge of gut health kind of expanding um, to more of the population, which is great, the one downside of that is that it gets a little watered down. I mean, I kind of didn't realize, even in my research, that when we talk about the gut microbiome, like we're really just talking about the large intestine. Every single digestive organ and area kind of has its own individual microbiome, its own, you know, specific mix of species and whatnot. But like the Huge volume is in your large intestine because that's where they have the most tasks and, you know, interact in helpful ways with your immune system, help to break down, you know, the kind of debris that ends up there that you don't personally digest. And the small intestine, on the other hand, is where you absorb your nutrients. So there's not really a whole lot of a role for bacteria there. There's some, but the population is normally very, very low. So the issue of SIBO is not necessarily about good versus bad bacteria, which is kind of what we talk about in the large intestine and kind of what we talk about with quote unquote dysbiosis, which just means an imbalance of the bacteria in your gut. So SIBO is a type of dysbiosis, but it's again, not about the type, it's just about the location. So when bacteria kind of overgrow too far up in the intestinal canal and we can we'll talk about it in a little bit I'm sure the variety of reasons the underlying causes um, for why that would happen but you know when those bacteria are present they are competing for your nutrients competing for your food and when they eat your food they release gas and now that that gas is so far away from its normal exit ramp it can get trapped and that's when it becomes really uncomfortable and you know it also will might look for another exit ramp hence the burping during my meals. but i'd say kind of the hallmark symptoms of sibo and you know the they really line up with ibs in general which is gas bloating diarrhea or constipation or a mix of the two that's like the textbook definition of ibs but then you know in addition to that because of the actual bacteria present and the gas there's a lot of damage that can result you know the bacteria themselves can Eat through your mucus lining and affect the integrity of your barrier wall. So, when they talk about leaky gut intestinal permeability, that is definitely a downward consequence of SIBO. And then just the gas itself in that area, obviously, it makes you uncomfortable, but it's also just inflammatory. So, then there's kind of this whole list of SIBO symptoms that are a little bit on the autoimmune spectrum as a result of that Mm -hmm. leaky gut. Um, So, food sensitivities, depending on what type of bacteria are overgrowing, Weight loss or weight gain. Of course, you know, mood disorders, anxiety, depression, you know, so much of that is reliant on the health of our gut. It's where ninety percent of our serotonin is produced. And then, you know, some of, again, those kind of insidious autoimmune symptoms, like skin issues, like, joint pain depending on how you know your systemic inflammation manifests so it's a really interesting problem and you know we'll we'll talk about the root causes in a second but it has such a huge overlap with a lot of autoimmune diseases a lot of just like General issues and medications and lifestyle choices. I think it's, you know, such a fascinating area and potentially this kind of epidemic that we just haven't really had a name for yet because IBS is the most common GI diagnosis in the world. And the reality is, it's really just a descriptor of symptoms, it doesn't give you an avenue really for treatment. And they're now saying that at least 60%, but probably more like 80% of all IBS cases are actually being caused by SIBO.
0: I was going to ask you the link between SIBO and and, uh, IBS.
1: Yeah, so I mean... SIBO is a type of IBS. Not all sure. IBS is SIBO. And again, some of the terms are interchangeable. Like there is a type of SIBO that is actually caused by food poisoning, or the root cause is food poisoning. And that has a diagnostic name of uh post-infectious IBS. But really, it's SIBO, it's the same thing.
0: Okay. So let's get into what, what causes SIBO.
1: Yeah. Right. Okay. So this is where you start to learn a little bit more about how the digestive system was designed. Because you know, as you mentioned, there's bacteria coming in through the nose and mouth all the time. So our body is designed to neutralize it and to make sure that none of these opportunists take up residence in the small intestine. So they either end up in the large intestine where they belong or they're killed upon entry. So kind of the first bucket, I would say. And in reality, a lot of people have multiple root causes and kind of feet in multiple buckets. But um, the first bucket would be that the bacteria is not killed. So that would be potentially because of low stomach acid. That's kind of the first leg of the labyrinth. A lot of people have low stomach acid. A lot of people are addicted to proton pump inhibitors because of acid reflux, Where which is In reality, most likely being caused by low stomach acid, not high stomach acid. And then, you know, these other antimicrobial substances that all join together in the small intestine. You have your bile acids, you have your pancreatic enzymes. And then, sorry, you have your immune system itself. So your immune system, you know, is pretty up in arms in your small intestine. That mucus barrier that separates it from the contents is very, very thin. So In theory, as in the case of food poisoning, you know, when a pathogen enters the body, your immune system is what's going to take it out. So they've actually found that a really common overlap with people with SIBO is being on immunosuppressants. Then the second bucket would be something called the migrating motor complex or motility. So this is this street sweeper mechanism. In the small intestines that kind of cleans up after a meal. It kicks in during a fasting state of 90 minutes or more. And the kind of like muscular motion called peristalsis is what moves food through your system. But since the small intestine is so long and windy, I mean, it has a larger surface area than a football field, you know, there's plenty of nooks and crannies for you know debris to kind of get stuck or for again like opportunists like bacteria to kind of pull off the exit ramp and decide to stay for a while so the migrating motor complex is powered by nerve cells and it's just kind of what Again, street sweeps clears the deck of any debris and prevents that from happening. So there's been a lot of research that shows that you know this is a pretty big bucket. The migrating motor complex falling down on its job or becoming stunted in some way is one of the biggest causes of SIBO, and there are a lot of diseases again that kind of overlap and dovetail with kind of motility issues, Hashimoto's being a big one. And then food poisoning is a really interesting example of that bucket because actually what happens is an acute case of autoimmunity where when your immune system attacks the foreign invader, it accidentally can, in some people, in some cases, attack the nerve cells of the migrating motor complex. So, you know, You may have those kind of 24 hours of misery after your food poisoning and then feel totally better. That's usually what happens. You know, for a stomach flu or food poisoning, it's like a 24 hour to 48 hour thing. But in kind of the aftermath, some people have this damage to the migrating motor complex. So over the next you know, days, weeks, months, it can be a slow process of things just starting to build up. And then all of a sudden, you know, three months later, you wake up and you're like, oh my gosh, Like I'm having really bad consistent IBS. And you may not even connect that to your food poisoning experience, but it is what happens with a lot of people.
0: Hmm. Interesting.
1: Yeah. And then there's a third bucket, of course. The third bucket would be structural issues. So anything that's like, you know, physically... Going wrong with your small intestine. It could be a kink. It could be that you don't have the back door between your small and your large intestine working properly, something called the ileocecal valve. But, you know, in theory, there's not supposed to be any backflow from the large intestine. But, you know, some people do have ileocecal valve dysfunction. And some people have their valve completely removed, in which case, like, that would probably be one of the issues that's going to, you know, preclude you to SIBO. But then even they say, That laparoscopic surgery, like really minor incisions in the abdomen, correlate to higher levels of SIBO. And that's because, you know, on the inside, even if you can't tell from the outside, things just heal differently. And there's kind of internal scar tissue that may bind to your organs and cause them to not, you know, function and move as freely as they once did. And because this organ is so long and windy, you know, any sort of pressure in that area might cause just like a four-lane highway to be reduced to a two-lane highway. And maybe on its own, that's not enough to cause an acute overgrowth like SIBO. But then if you pair it with low stomach acid, if anything happens with your migrating motor complex, it kind of becomes the perfect storm. So I'd say, again, like most people kind of have... You know, feet in all of these different buckets um, or multiple risk factors, or they've had some sort of acute event. Stress, by the way, is mm. known to limit both stomach acid and impair the migrating motor complex. And I'd say that it's an underappreciated root cause for a lot of people.
0: It's an underappreciated root cause for a lot of things.
1: Yes, absolutely. And I think it was my root cause too. You know, again, I have Hashimoto's, which makes me have lower stomach acid and have issues with my migrating motor complex. But I haven't had SIBO for the last 12 years. It took an acute case of stress to kind of push me over. But, you know, of course, the risk factors, you know, put me in a place where that could have, you know, been an issue and actually come to fruition
0: yeah I mean it's crazy how much goes on in our gut I mean in the whole digestive tract, like I said, from the nose to the excretion, there's a lot going on on any given time, yeah and what do you think intermittent fasting for sibo is is you mentioned the modality part and the and yeah. fasting I've read a lot about intermittent fasting. I'm a huge fan of intermittent fasting. Do you think that is helping sibo
1: a lot of people Do find success with that. I think, you know, it's become kind of a trendy topic. And I think the bigger takeaway is really just meal spacing. So, again, if you think about the migrating motor complex, if you're snacking all the time, even if it's a healthy snack, it's like a carrot stick or an almond, you know, you are shutting down that street sweeper mechanism. So, people who snack all day long, I mean, there are people who argue like, oh, we all metabolize differently. Some of us need like many small meals, others need three balanced meals. And I was just like, from this research, call BS on right, right. the lots of small meals because again, it just it means that this essential function is not kicking in. And certainly people weren't like snacking in the bush back when we were right, right. primitive human beings, and we still have that body. So I think just keeping your meals, you know, four to five hours apart to kind of allow for that function to happen is kind of the goal. Um if you feel better, you know, fasting for a certain period of time overnight anyway, that's great. I actually didn't include a whole lot of breakfast recipes in the book for that reason since I know a lot of people like to have that window. But I think you know the milder and the easier you know thing to achieve and probably the most helpful is the meal spacing.
0: Okay, okay. yeah I see the other thing is as I've worked with quite a few patients that had bariatric surgery mm. and I see SIBO, As a huge, after the bariatric surgery, I see a lot of SIBO.
1: Yep, yep. It's really, really common with the laparoscopic surgeries, and you know, it's not a life sentence, or sorry, it's not a a something that's guaranteed. And there is a way, you know, to find certain body workers that can help kind of alleviate that burden afterwards and make sure that your organs are kind of moving freely.
0: Right, right. I mean, we're talking about the digestive system did you notice any let's talk about stool samples for a minute or stool your your everyday. because i know a lot of people when i talk about people about weight loss one of my first questions other than sleep is how many ball movements you have in a day or how your ball movements look totally so where does that come in to play with SIBO
1: well, certainly, you know, if you're prone to constipation, it doesn't necessarily line up all the time with this issue of motility. They're kind of two different things, and medications that stimulate your migrating motor complex, your motility, or it's not going to make you have diarrhea. It's not like a laxative. But I would say that a lot of people with kind of like stagnant systems, and I'm thinking about a lot of the Hashimoto's people out there, you know, are kind of suffering from motility issues too. But no, absolutely, kind of the issue of not excreting every day is then you're not getting rid of your antibodies. You're not getting rid of, you know, excess hormones. You're not getting rid of toxins. And all of these things will then just go back into circulation and plague your liver, which is such an essential part of the digestive process and the gut in general. Um, I think it's kind of this overlooked organ, underappreciated organ. And if the liver is, you know, not functioning right, a lot of these other downstream functions are going to go awry as well. And as is The case with Hashimoto's, if you have hormone imbalances, that is going to really mess with your ability to, again, make... Proper stomach acid and to have the migrating motor complex functioning in all cylinders. And it makes you, if you're estrogen dominant, at higher risk of losing your gallbladder, which again, you know, they take these things out willy nilly without much thought, but then (laughs) you're losing like your essential bile acids. And that really does play a role in digestion.
0: Yeah. It's, it's, it's it's a shame that, because, but that goes into our medical system, and I want to stay away from that. But okay. they they do snatch that baby out very quickly. Yeah. It's like, okay, this is just, a, it's like a spare part. It's like, this yeah. isn't a spare part. You know, it's The like, tonsils okay. and the appendix, right.
1: too. I mean, we right. can't explain those as much, but like everything has a role.
0: Right. It's like, the oh, gall it's sick gallbladder is a bit it's gotta more essential. And, yeah. then, and usually the doctor will say, it's no big deal. You'll be fine.
1: Yeah, they do that with the thyroid too. Right. And it is a big deal. It's a
0: big deal. <laughs> it's kind of a big deal. Like, okay, doc. Anyway, I'm not going to even beat that bush today. All right. Let's talk about one thing I wanted to touch base on before we dig a little deeper into SIBO and what it looks like and how people can recognize it. Is Do you think there's a connection between SIBO and birth control pills?
1: Yes. But for the reasons that I just mentioned, you know the issues of hormonal imbalance. So when you're on the pill, you are going to be estrogen dominant. It's just by definition what happens. There's also a lot of you know proven dysfunction with the gut in terms of the balance of flora in your large intestine. Not as much has, and I don't think there's anything that's been studied in terms of specifically SIBO, and we don't really know like kind of what the role is between, you know, the health of your large intestine and someone developing SIBO. But we do know there's a correlation. You know, if you have other gut dysfunction, that is definitely going to put you at higher risk for SIBO. And it's also something to keep in mind because, you know, the treatment for this acute issue is often the exact opposite of what you want to do to foster the health of your large intestine. Cuz again, you're trying to eradicate the bacteria and you know, in order to do that, you kind of have to, you know, take on, you know, certain measures that, if done long term, is not going to be great for your overall gut health. So it's a really that's kind of what I tried to solve for in the book because it's a really fine line and it's really hard to get from point A to point B. You know, it's a lot to wrap your head around. But I think, you know, per the birth control pill, you know, if we know that we're damaging, you know, our overall gut health in certain ways, it of course will have a halo effect for SIBO.
0: Now I really love the SIBO symptom cheat sheet here.
1: <laughs>
0: so, for the listeners, what does SIBO look like, and before they go crazy testing? Yeah, what what does it look like, and what does what do you feel like?
1: Yeah, so I mean, I mentioned a few of the ones before, but I'd say kind of the differentiator because you know IBS symptoms can come from over forty different conditions it's a descriptor of symptoms not an <laughs> actual condition. So i would say kind of the big differentiator is like location and frequency of the bloating and the symptoms. You know, for women it's not like kind of period pain bloating which is like pretty far down. Um it's kind of like pressing up against the ribs. A lot of practitioners who i interviewed said like the palpating of it like feels like an inner tube lodged <laughs> under the ribs. And so that's one thing, the location, but then also the frequency, because again, the the symptoms are kind of directly related to eating, unfortunately, to the food itself. It's not like what happens, you know, eight hours after a meal or the next day, or it's not something that's like, you know, every few days I get these symptoms and I can't tell why. That could be, you know, a food sensitivity or something else. But you know, with SIBO, it's kind of like a consistent. Unfortunate bloating and misery. And then, of course, you know, some people have SIBO and have no symptoms. So it really does run the gambit, but most commonly those would be the symptoms. Okay.
0: Okay. So you have SIBO. What do we do to find out if you actually have SIBO? What are the testing options available? I know a breath test, stool sample, stool sample. Stool samples are not... uh, Because that more comes from the lower intestine.
1: Exactly. That's the large intestine. Yeah. So it's this breath test. And there are several different types. But the general concept is that you prep for 24 hours before, eat a limited diet to kind of make sure that all the fiber and whatnot has moved through your system. And then the morning of, you fast overnight. Then the morning of, you drink a sugar solution. And the hypothesis is... The only thing that could be munching on this sugar solution and generating gas is bacteria. So you breathe into a little tube every 15 to 20 minutes. And at those intervals, they measure the level of gases in your breath. And if it reaches a certain threshold at any point, kind of before the two hour mark, where upon which the idea is that the, the solution would have made it to your large intestine. that is what you know will diagnose someone with sibo, and then most practitioners like to do a three hour test to see actually what happens when it does reach the large intestine because if you don't have that spike at any point, that could also tell you something about what's overgrowing there
0: okay, okay all right, so let's dive into chapter two a little bit sure and and that is. What do we do now? We've got SIBO. Yeah. How do we get rid of these nasty critters? <laughs> or you call it clearing your critters in the book. Yes. And we have to fix this.
1: Yes. So-, so there are a few kind of main treatment options. And I'll just say that a lot of people, and I, you know, get messages, so many messages every single day, and emails from people who are trying to figure this out. And there's kind of a a misconception and a conflation of the idea of treatment and healing. They are two completely different things. Treatment is pretty aggressive most of the time. Usually, most people will go through one quote-unquote kill protocol. And that might involve conventional antibiotics or herbal antibiotics or something called the elemental diet, which is kind of a pure and simple starvation technique. It's like a medical shake that just gives you your essential nutrients but absorbs so high that the bacteria just won't have anything to eat. But again, all these things are kind of aimed at Eradicating the bacteria, so dealing with the kind of acute overgrowth. Um, what happens after that, and you know what oftentimes happens during the course of living with SIBO, and then even in the treatment phase, is there's a lot of damage that's done. You know, it, these herbs even are not benign; they are super aggressive and your immune system, you know, coming into these things and your liver trying to, to handle all the medications, you know, that's a lot for the body to deal with. So oftentimes, you know, the longer process is really the process of healing afterwards and You know, maybe taking on a diet that allows you to, you know, support your body in a more anti inflammatory way or take out potential food triggers and heal leaky gut. And then, you know, slowly trying to migrate into a diet that will support your entire gut health.
0: Okay. While we're talking, before we dive in deeper to the diets available or the diets used to treat this, First of all, Doctor Google is very dangerous for yeah. this for Sibo, and I'm sure that you went down many rabbit holes.
1: Oh yeah,
0: on, on Doctor Google with <laughs> Sibo. So, one thing, and this is where where I'm going with this, is that probiotics are a huge market. Yeah, but there's a lot of garbage mm-hmm. on the shelves at grocery stores and Walmart and CVS. And on Amazon, and what are some of the like probiotics dangers? And what are some of the probiotics that you personally... I mean, I, I'm personal to, for SIBO, soil bio, soil-based yeah. probiotics myself.
1: Yeah. Yeah, so there are different buckets. Actually, we talked offline about Dr. Ruscio, and he was someone I had on my podcast who I think explains... This element really, really well. Um, But essentially, you know, there are kind of three main, always into three main buckets. I don't know, but (laughs) there are three main buckets of this as well. So there are soil based probiotics, like you mentioned, which is something that if you're going to do in conjunction with SIBO treatment or afterwards, tends to be preferred by doctors because it's not. The type of bacteria that tends to overgrow, which would be the lacto bifido blends, which is what you will most commonly find on the shelf of your local store. It's the most common type, but, you know, and it's the type that a lot of people like myself will reach to when they're trying to fix their gut issues. And in the case of SIBO, you can sometimes be fueling the f- flames of right. your overgrowth because, especially if you don't fix the root cause, if it's motility or whatnot, you know. Those probiotics might be getting stuck and just adding to the existing population in your small intestine. Um, So, that would be, unless it's a specific strain that's known to have certain effects, um, one of them being, you know. Increasing your motility. Like, that's kind of the beauty of probiotics is that all of these strains are so specific um, and tied to specific actions. But unless you have a practitioner who's really savvy on that, the general advice is kind of avoid that bucket when on SIBO because you could be doing more damage. And then there's a third bucket, which is actually a beneficial yeast, the Saccharomyces bouillardi. Mm -hmm. And some doctors do like that either after SIBO treatment or in conjunction. Um, I think it actually has efficacy for healing leaky gut, among other things.
0: Okay. What about, let's talk about the the diets. I mean, there's Mm -hmm. low FODMAP, high FODMAP, (laughs) there's uh, SCD, which is what, specific carbohydrate diet? Yep. The elemental diet, which you mentioned. Uh, well, that's gaps. not really a
1: diet. That's like okay. a shake. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> we'll keep that in treatment.
0: Okay, gaps.
1: Yep, gaps. Fast track. Mm-hmm.
0: So where do you start with this? I mean, because I'm sure, yeah. if like I said, Dr. Google is dangerous. And I'm sure this comes up on Dr. Google that I'm sure somebody pays for ads on Google to mm-hmm. direct you towards their low FODMAP diet or direct you towards the... Elemental shakes.
1: Yeah. So I think the most important thing to know is that diet is not a treatment for SIBO. Again, it's kind of a tool for either managing your symptoms or for healing, usually for both. So there are plenty of doctors who don't advise doing anything diet wise during treatment because you essentially want to be cross training your bacteria and keeping them active so that you can kill them. But the flip side of that, Theory is that a lot of people, um, especially those with really severe SIBO, you know, may have no means of actually controlling your their symptoms. And as I mentioned before, treatment can be pretty intense. So that could just mean, you know, being completely miserable. So these other diets, I think low FODMAP primarily is kind of a means of taking away your bacteria's favorite foods, or at least the ones that are most likely to produce gas. And it is the list of high FODMAP foods to remove is really online with what every single microbiome specialist will tell you to eat for your large intestines. So that's why is kind of a lot to wrap your head around. So again, it's a balancing act, I think, of maybe reducing some of the big guns enough that you know your symptoms are under control and you're feeling a little bit better, but not enough during treatment at least for the Antimicrobials or antibiotics to not work. And then I think it's like, it's really a tool that a lot of people use for after treatment in order to kind of let the gut calm down and to actually heal. And I don't know that it's necessary to do like a really hardcore low FODMAP diet for that. I think it's more important actually to take out allergens, especially knowing Mm. that, you know, SIBO can cause leaky gut, and there's often so much overlap with autoimmune disease. You know, just making sure that you're taking out your big triggers and eating a really anti inflammatory diet that's kind of the best thing. But, you know, Unfortunately, with the low FODMAP diet, since it's so complicated and since it takes out so many really healthy vegetables, it can just limit people so much that you know, you're know you really just not doing yourself a service. Because ultimately, you know, our big picture goals is to eat as diverse a diet as possible with as many plants on your plate as possible. Again, so that we support the health of the large intestine. And also, I think people just get... You know, so focused on, oh, like, well, if I'm perfect with this diet, I'm going to be like helping my SIBO. And that's just not the reality at all. And I always tell people, like, if you don't react to something, eat it. Like, there's absolutely no reason to take anything out of your diet unless it's causing you harm. Of course, if you're trying to test for food sensitivities, like do a true allergen elimination diet, that's different. Um, You kind of want to have three weeks under your belt, like without those things in them. In order to see what happens. But FODMAPs are not actual allergens. They're in all plant foods. <laughs> You're not allergic to them. We couldn't live without them. And you know, if you eat something that upsets you, it's really only going to affect you for the cycle of your digestive system, so like for 24 hours. And it will not set you back to SIBO because your diet did not cause your SIBO.
0: All right. Let's dive in. Before we wrap this up, what is common for treatment for SIBO? Like we talk about diet, we talked about probiotics, but so are antibiotics necessary to treat SIBO?
1: No, I mean you can do the herbal route as well, or you can, you know, depending on how severe your SIBO is, you can try something else entirely. I actually just did a recent podcast episode that unfortunately came out after the book was already out about all these new treatment options that are being discovered. There's a lot of ways to to kind of skin the fish and. I think the most important thing is to figure out what your root causes are. You know, if it is a bariatric surgery or, you know, any sort of abdominal surgery, maybe you first try going to see a body worker and see if that helps, Mm. see if just, you know, making that a four lane highway again, if, the SIBO takes care of itself. It's not what most people do. Most people want immediate relief and they want medication, which is fine. But I do think that the reason why SIBO can become chronic in a lot of cases is because they don't take the time to you know, do these other therapies and to deal with the root causes. And I don't know, I'm not a practitioner, but I do think that I would like to open people's minds to the option of trying those things first and see right. what happens. I stress. Yeah. Yes, dealing with stress. um, Hypnotherapy for IBS is just as validated as low FODMAP diet. That to me means that it probably helps SIBO too, to a large extent. I mean, there's actually hard data now for hypnotherapy and SIBO, and it's pretty impressive. So, again, you know, like it's not to say that your gut issues are in your head, but your head could be causing a lot of them. And your head could also be, you know, the route to healing.
0: I, I mean, I always like to start with the low hanging fruit. Yeah. Sleep get you pooping and, yep. and stress. Yep. If you get those three working, we'll see, how, then we can yeah. go further.
1: Yeah. I mean, I think I'm so lucky that I had the experience of doing the wellness project prior because all of those common sense toolkit items are so important for SIBO healing too. Right. You can't miss out on any one of them, as you said.
0: Yep. Let's talk about the cooking part here. <laughs> sure. And I mean, we could beat the gut health and SIBO to death because there's a lot of things going on, but you really did some major work on this cooking part. And <laughs> and I really can't wait to dig into some of these recipes. So you're a cook in the, in the before, be, first and foremost, you're a cook. Yeah. Chef. Yeah. So go through wh- how this came about and what are some of your favorites in here?
1: Yeah, so again it's like you know I feel like people limit themselves and whittle themselves down to you know so few foods on a sibo diet and even on a low fi map diet there's still a lot of different vegetables that you can Eat and a lot of different flavors, even without garlic and onion, that makes your food exciting. So, I really tried to pull from you know recipes from all over the world too, because a lot of people are not going to be able to eat out or order takeout as much. You know, if you're avoiding garlic and onion, it's like pretty much impossible. Um, and I just want people to feel you know excited about their diet and not restrictive. And I know that you know, for the people who have the book, that's been such a huge gift and a takeaway. So, I don't know, some of of my favorites. The cover recipe is this West African stew that is just so delicious. I also will say, by the way, that the annoying thing about the low FODMAP diet is that there's a lot of... I mean, it's all quantity-based. So there's a lot of quote-unquote medium FODMAP foods that's like, you can eat it, but only like, Half a cup at one time. And who wants to measure that stuff out? I certainly Uh, didn't. I ended up just like taking those vegetables out of my diet because I didn't have a book like this that, you know, did the mathematics for me and allowed me to just, you know, have those smaller measurements in the dish itself. So the recipes, you know, kind of do that for you. There's this amazing turmeric dill catfish that's like a Vietnamese recipe. I saw that. Yeah. It's just a sheet pan, a simple sheet pan meal with bok choy and, um, That's really good. There are a lot of good sheet pan meals in there. I mean, I I really I'm a lazy cook. I cook for the home cook. Um, (laughs) There's a teriyaki pork tenderloin with bok choy and a low FODMAP portion of broccoli in there. Let's see what else. Um, there is. There's actually a lot of plant-based and vegetarian options in the book. There's this um, summer squash moheca, um, which is a mm. Brazilian fish stew. Um, but I made a vegetarian version that's just really, really flavorful and delicious. Yeah, those I are really some good like places this to start. Roasted
0: <laughs> carrot hummus.
1: Oh yeah, that's yummy too. <laughs> I'm gonna
0: I'm gonna try that actually soon because uh, I I'm a big fan of. I'm not such a big fan of hummus, but I'm a big f- fan of the consistency of hummus. Mm, yeah. And, I, and I'm a huge fan of carrots. So this one. Great. So, all right. I have a few fun questions to close out today. Okay. Favorite gut gut health specialist to follow.
1: I like Dr. Ruscio okay. and Will Cole a lot. I mean, I'm biased because I both endorsed my book, but um, right. they're both lovely humans and yeah. very smart.
0: Yep. Uh, both of those are on my list.
1: Oh, and Dr. Jolene Brighton. Yep. She's a friend and she's, she's awesome.
0: A, she's amazing. Yeah. Matter of fact, I've got to get her on my show. Yeah. I'll talk about And
1: Aviva Ram, too, is so great. Yeah. I mean, they're both more hormone-based, but you can't right. talk about hormones without gut health. So. Right.
0: You can't. I mean, because you need... No. To. All right. Next question. If you had 45 minutes to Killer Chill, what album or artist would you put on?
1: Oh, my gosh. Fleetwood Mac.
0: Okay. Oh, yeah. They're actually getting back together. They, I read an article they, that the two of them, the drummer and the guitar player, finally decided to call their differences and say... They're okay. always
1: getting back together and I breaking know. up. That's the beauty of them. <laughs> I've seen them in concerts several times oh, yeah, the last 10 years. They're always getting back together. No, I love together. them, man. They're great. They're still great. <laughs> yeah.
0: Hopefully, we have concerts again soon. Yeah. All right. What would you like to leave the listeners with before we go that we haven't touched on or have touched on?
1: Oh man. I mean, I think it's that it's more important how you eat than what you eat. Again, it's like the diet didn't cause your SIBO. More likely, kind of the way you're eating or, you know, some of your habits might have been much bigger risk factors. So, you know, keep in mind how your digestive system was meant to function. Chew your food. Don't eat toke. Too close to bedtime before going horizontal stop snacking and space out your meals don't you know chug water during your meal it dilutes your saliva you know there's so many little little things um, maybe don't wear for the ladies out there like our modern corsets high-waisted jeans with no give or spanx you know again that's gonna maybe make a four-lane highway into a two-lane <laughs> highway um I think all of these things have a bigger impact on your IBS than a specific ingredient okay
0: Okay, good. And I'm going to put these links in the show notes, especially for the book, because I, I can't recommend this book highly enough for anybody with any. I don't, even if it's not SIBO, if it's just for gut health, period, this book will cover it.
1: Awesome. And
0: so I, I'm going to put the links in, but where can people find you? I know that uh, the uh, podcast,
1: Yeah. So the SIBO Made Simple podcast, you can find wherever you find your podcasts. Um, SIBOMadesimple.com has all of the retailer links for the book and also a fun freebie that I'm still offering. It's a five-day gut heal boot camp. Oh, yeah. And then... My recipes and lots of free SIBO resources you can find on my blog, which is FeedMePhoebe.com. And yeah, again, there's lots of recipes there to choose from. Not all of FADMAP, you know, that kind of run the whole gambit of healthy comfort food. And then I'm always on Instagram at Phoebe Lapine doing lots of educating and cooking and fun stuff.
0: Yeah, I just started following you the other day. I was like, when I I actually took a picture of your book. And (laughs) and I said, this is an amazing book. and uh, so, uh, yeah, I, I'm not all into the, f- <laughs> I'm not very good at Instagram, but all That's these okay. new, all these new goofy things they're doing on Instagram. I'm like, okay, I don't have time for that.
1: I know. I so get it's like, it.
0: Let me put a picture and talk yeah. about hormones or talk about diet <laughs> and, and move on. Cause I don't, but these, what do you call those? Those. The reels. Uh, the reels. I'm like, oh, don't get me started on this. Yeah. All, all my people were like, well, you got to do this. I'm like, no, I don't have to No,
1: do you don't have to do anything.
0: <laughs> I like them. I enjoy watching them, but I'm not, <laughs> you're not going to see me on a reel anytime soon. <laughs> oh, Phoebe, thank you so much.
1: This is so fun. Thanks for having me. Yeah,
0: I appreciate you reaching out and uh, I appreciate you being on here and, and like I said, major props to this book and I, I hope that uh, people go out and, and purchase your book and I'm going to make sure that they, it's on my website and on the show notes.
1: Awesome. Uh, Thanks and so much.
0: I would like to, I'm probably going to go back and read The Wellness Project.
1: Oh, good. Eventually, so. It's a good one too. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> well,
2: thank you. Have a wonderful day. You too. All right. Bye-bye.